Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Vergiss alles, was du über Arbeit weißt. Denn jetzt kommt das Update für dein Unternehmen. Mit Firmenfitness von Urban Sports Club. Profitiere von gesunden und ausgeglichenen Mitarbeitenden. Und Stress gehört ab sofort der Vergangenheit an. Egal ob Fitness, Schwimmen, Yoga oder Wellness. So geht moderne Arbeit heute. Mit Urban Sports Club. Erfahre jetzt mehr auf firmenfitness.urbansportsclub.com Lives Less Ordinary is the podcast from the BBC World Service bringing you extraordinary personal stories from around the globe. Search for Lives Less Ordinary wherever you get your BBC podcasts. This is Discovery from the BBC World Service and I'm exploring two stories each week of how insects have transformed our world. As a rather famous comedian once said, I'm covered in bees and I am staring at Thousands of bees, so many different types of bees. And bees are amazingly intelligent, okay? They're famous for this innate intelligence. They're famous for this waggle dance, this method of communication between the different workers. And they're also very famous for their ability to learn. And it is studying them, understanding how they are beginning to learn, that is offering us this extraordinary insight into animal cognition across many different species, including our own. 80% of animals described on our planet are insects, and yet their appearances can seem as alien or as strange as many a mythic beast. But some of us who study these wondrous species, both now and in the past, have discovered a treasure trove of remarkable insights. I'm Erica McAllister, and in this series I'm taking a peek at those entomological pioneers and examining how their groundbreaking discoveries and experiments have led to some truly novel developments. With many contrasting attitudes to bees, a lot of us love these fluffy flying packages and we understand their value as pollinators, whilst others have a morbid fear of their weapons, all primed for an attack. For centuries, the idea of intelligent insects, and in particular bees, was considered to be a contradiction in terms. And as Professor Martin Jerfer, who studies perception and learning in honeybees, explains, since insects have small brains, any cognitive aspects were easily dismissed. The whole literature about insects or invertebrates was describing these animals as actually driven by spontaneous reaction towards the stimulus. You see light, you go to light. You cannot stop doing that. You feel wind, then you fly against the wind. It's true, though. I mean, we still have many people doing this today. We talk about moths being attracted to your light, that they can't stop themselves. That's this, this innate position that they're in. It is true that these behaviours exist in insects, but they also exist in humans. We also have some innate reactions. But reducing the insects just to that is the big mistake. Mm. Naturalist Charles Darwin was famously generous in attributing intelligent behaviour and mental abilities to animals. Yet his mid-19th century musings were largely based on observation and inference. But a pioneering young African-American biologist 
and civil rights activist Charles Henry Turner agreed with Darwin's assertion that humans were not the only intelligent animal species. Turner began a host of investigations in the 1890s that were in sharp contrast to prevailing ideas about animal behaviour and cognition. Any lack of response to a stimulus does not mean that the stimulus has not been noticed by the insects, but that to them it has not yet acquired a meaning. He'd go on to publish over 70 papers on intelligent problem-solving in many invertebrates, and in particular, bees. The notes that he took are so detailed, but what they reflect is a lot of patience. As Jessica Ware of the American Museum of Natural History explains, it took painstaking research in often adverse conditions for Turner to tease out individual variations in bees' behaviour. So this is someone who sat for hours upon hours upon hours. You know, he would describe sitting in the baking hot sun, you know, probably wearing a suit, describing every single bee, the position of their legs and, and the flowers that they were visiting. That takes a lot of patience. Turner had been raised in Ohio just after the Civil War had ended, and he showed a keen and inquisitive mind early on in his life, as well as an avid interest in nature. And this was encouraged by his parents, who would support him throughout his school years. But what led him to be able to have the gumption, I suppose, given the racial kind of segregation of the time, Mm. um, and to be able to say, well, I want to study something in university. That I think we don't really know. We don't have a lot of details about the support or or encouragement that he may have gotten, because that would have been kind of remarkable at the time. He obtained a degree from the University of Cincinnati in 1892, and in that same year became the first black researcher to publish in the journal Science. A remarkable achievement about a remarkable study on web building by gallery spiders. Individual spiders, he observed, seem to completely adapt their building of webs to the geometry of the available space and in the prey that they were interested in. We may safely conclude that an instinctive impulse prompts gallery spiders to weave gallery webs, but the details of the construction are the products of intelligent action. It was an interpretation of animal behaviour that would underlie his entire body of work and was a passport into the weekly lab meetings run by his mentor, Clarence Herrick. By the way, those were usually white only and Herrick discussed with the other lab members, is it okay if Charles Turner comes, if he attends these lab meetings? And they said yes. And so he was invited to go to these lab meetings and discuss science and the intellectual pursuit of you know, investigation and experimentation and how to do research. And he describes this environment of science that was not really recognizing him based on his race or creed, but really inviting him into this lab culture. And so you can imagine the frustration upon receiving a doctorate in zoology and with 20 publications under his belt, that in the years that followed, he could not secure an academic appointment. In the middle of this frustration, the wife dies. He stays alone with two kids. He's applying for professorships. Nobody wants him because of his racial origins. And nevertheless, he continued publishing papers. That's absolutely incredible. And perhaps this isolation from the standard academic world promoted this original thinking. And his originality continued to be played out when he turned to teaching at an African-American high school in St. Louis. Without state-of-the-art lab facilities or access to libraries, he turned to fill work at home and in the school gardens with his pupils, feeding his curiosity for all things bee. 
he showed that the solitary bees that dig little holes in the ground, they learn the position of their nest by integrating the constellation of landmarks around that hole. And that is what would guide them towards that little hole. So he did a simple experiment. He put some pieces of paper, pyramids or so on, around the net, and then he moved them to another place. And then he saw that the little bees were going towards the landmark, not to the real hole. So he concluded, okay, they are really learning landmarks, and that's what they use to identify the hole in the ground. By a process of elimination, the most consistent explanation of this behavior is that burrowing bees utilize memory in finding the way home, and that they carefully examine the neighborhood of the nest for the purposes of forming pictures of the topographical environment of the burrow. Turner's analysis of honeybee foraging and orientation anticipated our current interpretations of insect behavior, and it is this that modern-day researchers are rediscovering and continuing to build on. In his lab at Queen Mary College London, Lars Chitka is examining what bees are capable of learning if taken out of their natural environment, and if they can even anticipate outcomes of their own actions. The current lab setup is testing the ability of bees to gain access to artificial flowers that are concealed under low glass panels by pulling on strings that are attached to these nectar awards in order to drag them out from under the glass. Specifically, the task is the question of whether bees understand the basic physics of such a task. For example, presenting the bees with various arrangements of such concealed artificial flowers. So a simple version of this task is to pick when you have the option between pulling a long and a short string to pull the shorter one. So, hold on, so you've got, say, one with a piece of string that's, say, a centimetre long. Mm-hmm. You have one the two, three centimetres long, and they're visually making a comparison and picking the, the correct ones. Yes, so they have to focus on the one that's the shortest. A more complicated version of the task is when the bee has to compare a short but interrupted string yeah. and a long, continuous string, because the bee, in that case, has to make the judgment that it's actually beneficial to pull the longer string because the short one isn't physically connected to the flower. I didn't realise it was that complicated. That's amazing. Are they teaching each other or are they just observing each other? They're just observing each other. Okay. Uh, So there's no deliberate effort on the part of skilled bees to show the other bees how to pull a string. In this particular case, the bees do learn from each other by observing each other, but only as a byproduct of a skilled demonstrator as we call them pulling the string and another bee attending this but the demonstrator doesn't make an active investment into passing on the information about the technique. This much learning in so small a brain is one of the several important insights bees can teach engineers and is now fueling a new generation of bee-sized robots. Farrah Helbling of Cornell University heads the RoboBee project, developing fleets of mini-flying machines that's aiming to embrace the bee's intelligence along with the bee's versatile flight abilities. It has a wingspan of about 2 centimetres. It weighs only 90 milligrams. So oh, it's tiny. It, it, it is incredibly lightweight that's, and small. It's got flies heavier than that. <laughs> so some of the applications that we're looking at are 
any scenario where you want a lot of information quickly from a distributed area. So any situation where it's too dangerous for a human to enter. So um, collapsed buildings and things like that. So collapsed you just dispersed bil- loads of them at the same time. Exactly. Anything like inspection where you have to get into really tight spaces. Certainly, as a first step, we want to embed them with enough intelligence that they can read and process sensory information. They can Mm -hmm. discover more about the world around them. They can easily navigate through an environment. And in order to do some of those things, learning may have to be involved because it's going to have to determine, okay, I've seen this type of shape Mm -hmm. again and again and again. What does it mean? Um, Or is this a shape that I want to go to? Like, do I want to go to this flower? And so that is absolutely something that people in this area are looking at. And as we continue to draw upon the bee's extraordinary abilities, could the small brain of a bee not only learn, plan, but also imagine? We have more and more fragments of evidence that bees don't just live in the present, that they can project at least into the near future, and that there might also be basic emotions in bees. We're getting more and more pieces of experimental evidence that point in the direction that there is a a form of consciousness in bees. We've much to thank for in those exceptional individuals who are dedicated to learning more about the insect life on our planet. But it's from intelligence to emotions that we turn to next. And with a much maligned forager, they would uncover the amazing ways we successfully and rapidly adapt our behaviour to a changing environment. You're listening to Discovery from the BBC, and I'm exploring how insects have transformed our world. I'm staring at what most people consider a massive pest. They like to eat the same foods as us, they like to live with us, and they're especially troublesome in kitchens, and in my case I have one under my bath. But there's something very amazing about these creatures, and the creatures I'm talking about are cockroaches. Over 80% of animals described on our planet are insects, and yet their appearances can seem as alien or as strange as many a mythic beast. But some of us who study these wondrous species, both now and in the past, have discovered a treasure trove of remarkable insights. Insights that have increased our knowledge across many scientific disciplines. These cockroaches have relatively large brains when it comes to other insects, and they're not not just in their head. Their network of neurons extends down the entire length of their body. And this is amazing because over the last century... This has helped turn the field of neurophysiology on its head, as it were, because they're so fast at adapting to different situations. They change their behaviour so rapidly. We've been studying them to understand how we too rapidly change in an altering environment. I'm Erica McAllister, and in this series, I'm taking a peek into some of these entomological pioneers and examining how their groundbreaking observations and experiments have led to some truly innovative developments. We have a funny relationship with cockroaches. Many people dislike them for their cohabiting behaviour, whilst others are intrigued. I've kept several different species as pets, and I'm sure many more have kept me as a host for food and shelter. They're clever, and they can learn many things, such as how to navigate mazes. 
And it's these insects' extraordinary ability to carry out these tasks that marks them out as major players in understanding the cellular mechanisms underlying animal performance, personality and behaviour. They're able to learn, they're able to be plastic in their behaviour in response to their environments. They're not just little robots that are programmed to do fixed things in fixed circumstances. Steve Simpson of the University of Sydney studies the tiny nervous systems of insects. They appear to be anatomically hardwired, but they have an extraordinary flexibility that enables them to adopt new behaviour in a matter of hours or even minutes. That's enabled by neuromodulation, so chemicals that not only signal from one neuron to the next, but actually set the tone and the contribution of different neurons within circuits. So by using a small number of neurons flexibly, you can achieve great behavioural flexibility, and that's of huge adaptive significance to animals in navigating their worlds. The idea that chemicals could play a role in the nervous system to affect the rest of the body is old, and can be traced back to 18th century French physician Théophile de Bordeaux. But he vaguely speculated and offered no data to support his musings. The concept was ridiculed in the 19th century, but returned in a different form in the early 1930s, thanks, in part, to a German biologist, Berta Schara. As a young girl, she set her sights on becoming a research scientist, and in order to achieve her goal, Berta attended the University of Munich. And that had been an astute choice. Both her intelligence and aptitude led her to be supervised by physiologist Carl von Fritsch, the well-known ethologist who worked on animal behaviour, sensations in fish and language of bees. Working with von Frisch, she must have been in an environment where she could see that little tiny things were really remarkably clever. And the question as to how they do that with such small brains and small bodies must have been a burning one for her and it led her to these fundamental ideas around how you use nervous systems, not only how you use them, how you build them, to provide that flexibility in behaviour that allows animals to adapt within complex environments. And it was while she was in Munich researching the neuroanatomy of both bees and the tiny Drosophila fly that she met student and husband-to-be Ernst Schara. An academic career at that time did not look promising at all for a woman. I must say that I could not have done what I have if I had not been married to a biologist who gave me a chance to do my work. He was working on vertebrates, and particularly the nervous system of minnows. And as historian Matthew Cobb of the University of Manchester explains, it was here that the seeds for her future career in the new field of neurosecretion were sown. He came up with what at the time was a, a very surprising hypothesis, and it was that neurons, so nerves, don't only send information. They're not only some kind of weird chemical electricity that makes them work, but he also suggested they were producing hormones. They were producing chemical messages. And this was very surprising. I mean, the only evidence he had was the structures that he could see inside the nerves. He could see these little vesicles that looked like they were releasing something. The idea that neurons may be capable of dispatching neurohormonal or blood-borne signals over distances 
an activity previously only associated with endocrine cells, met with powerful resistance. The Sharas decided early on that they could best prove the widespread existence of neurosecretion by divvying up the animal kingdom. Ernst would continue to study the vertebrates, while Berta would take on the backboneless world of insects. And she began observing similar structures in her beloved bees and vinegar flies that Ernst was seeing in the vertebrates. One couldn't have foreseen the spectacular developments. But the early observations were most definitely not artefacts or a figment of the imagination. But with the dark shadow of Nazi Germany looming, the Shahs took a series of academic posts across America. As friend and colleague George Stefano recalls, though, whilst Ernst was able to secure paid work, Berta was forced to pursue her complementary research with Ernst for free. Being a woman gave her a tough time. She had to hold a position. She had to maintain her scientific interest. So how was she going to maintain herself? She had to work with something that was economical, easy to take care of, didn't demand a lot of people, and at the same time, extremely meaningful. Now, what's better than a cockroach? They're easy to maintain, they're of good size, and the centrally heated basement of Chicago University was stuffed with them. Her cockroach room, so to speak, was right next to the woman's bathroom. <laughs> And people were starting to realize what the odor, and she knew she was getting a little bit in trouble. I, I can but, imagine a slightly wry smile. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The common cockroach was good, but that was until she had a chance encounter with some bigger stowaways. There was a shipment into the university of a load of monkeys, and in the cages there were these very large wood roaches which are bigger than an ordinary cockroach they also smell a lot they make a kind of clicking noise and they can fly which isn't very nice but she now found this large tractable uh, you can do things with it uh, system which meant both she could do these physiological experiments to demonstrate the function of various glands by removing them or adding them and she could do her neuroanatomy much easier than working on some horrible tiny drosophila. It was an excellent subject species and Bertie began her now classic experiments removing and transplanting tissue and in doing so, she was able to prove the storage and release of hormonal substances from nerve cells. Not only that, but that many of the hormones acted quickly on neurons, even at some distance away. And the cockroach very quickly became an insect physiologist's model because you could remove these various glands and demonstrate their function. That was really very important, I think, in helping to develop the whole field of insect neuroendocrinology, mm, as it ended mm. up being called, this discovery that neurons can secrete hormones. However, we had made bold claims, and it is understandable that it took about 20 years of work for most people to accept these concepts. I think because she had all this invertebrate work, she was actually able to demonstrate that, yes, these structures and these characteristics are conserved across the whole of animal life. And she's working in collaboration with her husband, but without her work, his would have been much less impressive. 
Whilst her findings helped revolutionise our understanding of the nervous system across the whole of the animal kingdom, insects also provide amazing insights into the way the nervous systems can drive rapid changes in behaviour. To me as an entomologist, one of the most powerful examples comes from Steve Simpson's favourite research tool, the Desert Locust. Normally shy and solitary, these insects, upon encountering others, undergo a big personality change. Rather than avoiding one another, they start actively seeking out one another's company. They aggregate. And as they aggregate, they start to march and move collectively through the habitat. And when they become adult, produce these enormous wing swarms and indeed a single swarm if it lands in an area of agriculture can consume more in a day than the entire population of London would eat in a week. This Jekyll and Hyde transformation seemed to be caused not by sight or smell but by physical contact between locusts. And to narrow it down further, research began on mimicking the insects' jostling actions. So then we spent many hours tickling locusts with a paintbrush on did you really parts of their body yeah that no, was a zen like how did you experiment. get this through ethics approval i'm just going to sit in the lab and tickle locusts ethics don't care about locusts <laughs> this is a very berta shara approach to, yeah it really is it. isn't it yet through doing that and some must be said sophisticated behavioral analysis but <laughs> of course uh, of course We showed that if you tickle the thigh of a locust, it will flip into gregariousness. That was a beautifully fortunate result because it gave us a direct window into the underlying neurochemistry of the process. The changes in the nervous system that turned antisocial locusts into monstrous swarms was down to release of a chemical that also influences how we humans behave and interact, that great party hormone, serotonin. That same chemical, serotonin, it's one of the really important neuromodulatory compounds and it's involved in an extraordinary array of different pieces of biology. So what we'd found was this population of neurons that, if you like, sit at the seat of the entire process of swarming in locusts and it was really quite remarkable to look under the microscope at these glowing neural processes within which reside this entire complex piece of biology that has Mm. so much impact on humans. And so all of us, like humans, insects and so on, uh, all of our electrical circuits are getting modified by languishing in this soup of chemicals. Yes, some of them released into parts of the brain and serotonin is one example of that in response to particular patterns of neural activity and environmental stimulus, which can then change the electrical properties of cells or things that go on within the cell. And so this is utterly transformational in our understanding of biology, not just behaviour, pretty much everything. Shara brought the cockroach from out of the basement and into the lab and in doing so she demonstrated the amazing adaptability with insects that has been shown across all animals. So next time you look at an insect remember that it's also looking back at you. Its tiny brain may be sizing you up far more quickly and effectively than you've ever realised. 
Thanks for listening to Discovery from the BBC World Service. I'm Erica McAllister and the producer was Adrian Washbourne. Lives Less Ordinary is the podcast with astonishing personal stories from across the globe. You are the only survivor. I say how could about others see they all died? Expect the unexpected. We were having a big tearful discussion. How could someone ever do this? How could that ever happen? And that's the first time I ever came out with my story about how I was almost a school shooter. Lives Less Ordinary from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts.